I get excited to preach God's Word anyway, but uh, there's a particular excitement, uh, level of excitement here, um, especially at Ignite, so uh, good to be here with you. Um, I, before we get into the message, I just want to take a minute to thank the, uh, the men and a couple women showed up yesterday too uh, for a, a pretty long and hard work day. Um, a lot was uh, accomplished, uh, much was done on the roof and on the grounds. If you noticed, uh, it was easier to find the parking lot because it wasn't covered in grass. Uh, yeah. You can go ahead and clap. Uh, you know, I don't take that for granted one, one for one second, because here's, here's the reality, here's the truth, is, is that in, in the church of Jesus, uh, there's usually speaking a, a ratio of five to one women to men. Um, and uh, that, that dearth of attendance by men uh, has uh, left a, a gaping hole, that women have, uh, have filled well. They, they have stepped in in our absence, and they've filled those holes. Uh, but men belong in church, and, and men belong being men in church, and, and doing some hard work, and, and lifting some heavy things, and, and fixing buildings, and, and clearing parking lots. So um, I just appreciate all the people that showed up yesterday and, and spent hours in the sunlight um, with the weed whacker in hand, clearing all the vegetation so you could tell which was parking lot, which was, which was grass. Um, so I do appreciate that. Now we are going to probably, and this is a kind of an announcement I didn't, uh, I didn't create a slide for, but we're probably moving forward. I had a great idea presented to me yesterday at the workday uh, by Chris. Uh, and he said, well, you know, we could, we could probably turn our men's breakfast every month into shorter workdays. We don't have to do as much work, but we could probably do some work each time we meet together. I thought it was an awesome idea. We're already here. And now we're probably, have, our attendance on men's breakfast are gonna, is going to plummet. <laughs> Yeah, more donuts, and uh, Ed, Ed's going to pick those up for us. When you speak up in church, you get volunteered. Yeah. Ed and I are kindred spirits. We speak the same uh, love language, sarcasm and dry humor. And uh, I, I appreciate that. He was my favorite member of the worship team until Roe took me to some Brazilian steakhouse the other day. Where'd, where'd Roe go? So I'm pretty, I mean, I'm pretty fickle. It's... Uh, Anyway, um, so what we're going to do is, is we'll make a couple points of contact, myself, Jeremy, and, and Chris probably. If you, if you see anything in the building or the premises that needs uh, tending to, uh, just get that information to us. We'll keep a list going, we'll prioritize, and we will we'll knock it out. Um, and I look forward to it. Uh, great day yesterday, camaraderie and uh, fellowship with the men, albeit with noisy power tools and, uh, and the sun beating down on us. It was a good time. So, uh, What's that? A lot of laps. Yeah, if you had your, your, uh, your step counter on you, you probably had 15,000, 20,000 steps on you yesterday. But uh, we, are, we are back in our series in uh, Galatians uh, today. And uh, that will be a series. I will take occasional departures from that as the Spirit leads. I might uh, venture into this or that topical theme uh, as the Spirit uh, indicates I need to do so. But otherwise, we'll plan on going verse by verse through Galatians. Galatians, as I said last week, just for a little bit of review, Galatians is, is possibly, quite possibly, maybe even probably, the, the oldest and earliest epistle or letter that Paul wrote. Uh, because Paul had the earliest writings of anybody's writings that would eventually become scripture, uh, we have in Galatians possibly the earliest canonical writings in scripture, which is pretty, a pretty amazing thing to think about. We're reading the earliest Bible words being written, besides the Old Testament, the oldest, earliest New Testament words being written. Um, and it uh, makes it doubly 
uh, I guess, important that we understand why Galatians was written. It's only just a few short years since Paul planted the churches of Galatia that he now finds himself defending his apostleship and the gospel itself that's under attack in that area. As Paul warned the Ephesians, and as I keep mentioning and reminding you, uh, he told the Ephesian leaders, like, look, when, when I leave, the void that's going to be filled is going to be savage wolves that come in and try to steal the flock. And not just try, but accomplish. And, and here we have the Galatians going that direction. Now, how fast we get off track. I was thinking about, if you're ever out in an ocean, and you're facing the ocean, not facing the, the shore, and you just tell yourself, just stand still. Just don't move. And then wait about a half an hour. And then turn around and look how far you've drifted from the shoreline. And that's kind of how our spiritual walk is. Uh, I, I believe there's no such thing as standing still or standing stagnant in our spiritual walk. We are either moving forward in sanctification as Christ is making us more and more like himself, or we're moving backwards, we're backsliding. There's no such thing as standing still. So it needs to be a conscious effort all the time that you're leaning into uh, the Spirit. You're leaning into God's Word to be more and more aware of the things that He's trying to do in your life and through your life. And so because the Gospel's uh, under attack, we tried to get a good working definition last week. And I, I found a definition uh, because I, I don't like using, I've told you, I don't like using the word Gospel. You think, well, you're a preacher. You're a preacher of the Gospel. The reason I don't like using, I, use, I like using the word Kingdom instead is because what we've done in the modern Western church is we've truncated the meaning of Gospel. So that when I say that word, what you probably think of is my own personal individual salvation. A fire, fire insurance policy from hell. The gospel means, in Greek, it means good news. And so we, we think, well, it means good news to me as an individual. I get to get out of damnation. I get to get out of the fires of hell. And, and, and that's part of it. But I like a more kingdom definition. And so we turn to uh, Tom Wright, who gives us more kingdom definition of gospel. And it's this, it's the announcement that Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is exalted as Lord of the whole world. Therefore, he is calling into, into existence a single and worldwide family. So the word gospel is not just or even primarily about your salvation, but about his kingship. And, and it may seem subtle, it may seem, so the, the shift may seem subtle, but it means it, it, it makes all the difference. If the focus is on Jesus as king, the focus can't be on you. We've said it a couple times the last couple weeks, he must increase, we must decrease. It has to be more and more about the king. And this whole gospel message, the whole good news, is all about him setting up and fortifying his kingdom and building it through us. But we can only build his kingdom through us so far as we're yielded to his spirit to do so. Now, a, a glorious part of that one that I, I take a lot of uh, joy and comfort in is that part of that kingdom is the salvation he extends to you and to me. When he found us in a broken heap, unable to do anything for ourselves. And most of us, if we've come to Jesus, we've come to some point of conversion in our life where he said, Jesus is king and I am not. We didn't do so with our egos uh, high and lifted up. We did so probably scraping the bottom. Really realizing that there's nothing more that I could do. I couldn't offer anything, plus Jesus, nothing. Imagine taking a beautiful, beautiful painting and then trying to add to it with your dirty, muddy hands. You try to carefully just add the mud to the, the beautiful painting. And can you carefully enough add mud to a beautiful painting? You can't. You can't add anything to what Jesus has done. By grace, we've been saved through faith. 
So we're back at it. Paul is going to continue his, uh, his defense of his apostleship and also the gospel, more, more primarily the gospel. But we're going to, before we get into the text, it's going to be Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24. But let's say a word of prayer. Lord and Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for uh, a comfortable building to meet in, Lord. We thank you for a, a group of people willing to work all day long uh, to be good stewards of your building and the grounds that you've given us. Might we never take that for granted, that we have a place to meet like this. Lord, we ask your Spirit to go before us. Lord, for those that already know you as Savior, we ask, Lord, that for there be a renewed fire in their soul, a renewed passion for the things of your kingdom. For those that don't know you, Lord, we ask that this might be the day that they would come to find you. This would be their broken Damascus Road experience day. that in humility and broken heart and contriteness, that they would see our, our inability to do it on our own. Brother, might the words that I speak be the words that you'd have me to speak, nothing more, nothing less. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so I'm going to try to keep my thoughts short, says every preacher ever, right? You got a captive audience and I got 15 pages of notes here. It's just three. Just three, but it could have been 15. We're in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, and I will try to keep my thoughts short for today to leave more room and time for the fellowship, for the launch, and, and all that. I, I, that matters a great deal to me. I, I take this very seriously. I take the God's word very, very seriously. But I also take the other aspects of the things that he's called us to do, the things that the early church did, and it did well, the breaking of the bread and the fellowship. Those were important things, getting to know each other. And so Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24 starts off, for I would have you know, brothers, and it might just be me, but when I read, for I would have you know, I, I somehow get this sense that it should be read, uh, read in a British accent. If any of you could help me out, I'm terrible at accents. My, my daughter points that out to me when I'm trying to do one, uh, so I won't, I won't do it for you here, but uh, I, I picture Paul in a British accent. Don't know why he wasn't British, but uh, I would have you know. In, in other words, let me tell you something. Let's get, let's get a couple of things straight. Let's set the record straight. I, I imagine there's a bit of angst in his voice. This church that he just planted a few years prior is now calling into question the very thing that he built when he was there and the very person that delivered it to him when it got, when it got built in the first place. And so he's having to defend himself. Let me tell you something. Let's get a couple things straight. Let's set the record straight. That's Whittem translation. That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He got Paul, in his road to Damascus experience, saw the risen Christ. Not, not some apparition, not some ghost. He saw the physical risen Christ in the road to Damascus. And if you see the risen Christ and he speaks to you, it should matter to you. And it shouldn't much matter what anybody else says about what he said to you. I do want to caution us uh, to be careful. In some traditions, nobody ever hears from God. And in other traditions, somebody's got a word from God every five minutes. You know, and it's, uh, I hear some, some giggles as, as if we, we know what, that's the case. But I caution us not to use this sort of thing. Sometimes people get, uh, they're theological bullies. They say, well, God told me to do this, so there's nothing you can say to, to, to dissuade me, right? That's kind of an, a conversation ender. Well, God told me, so I don't care what you, what you say. Now, now, if God did tell you something, then, then by all means act upon it. Um, 
But be careful not to use that too loosely. And we're told in 1 John chapter 4 to test the spirits. Do not believe everyone. I've told you over and over the last few weeks, if you're told something by a spirit that isn't the spirit, I'd be worried about what you're hearing. I'd be worried about the source because there's only one spirit. And it's not going to, the spirit's never going to say something to you, anything to you that contradicts this book. And that's why it's so important. The first week I was with you, I said, I'm going to promise to you that I'm going to be grounded in and founded upon God's word. Because I've got nothing to say to you except what I can dig up out of here. I'm not real creative. And I'm not that funny. I think that I am. But I'm not. I can tell because sometimes I think, do I need to say that joke again? Did they not understand it? And I'm always tempted to. Who am I kidding? I am funny. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Ed. But we're to test the spirits, First John chapter 4. Don't believe everyone. In fact, statistically, if there's only one real spirit, and there's how, who knows how many other spirits vying for our hearts and our minds, then not everything that we hear, not everything that we think is, uh, is necessarily of the spirit. Spiritual influences are real on both sides of the aisle. Now, I want to I want to I want to be careful. I don't believe that somebody who's given their life to Christ and is indwelled by the Holy Spirit can be possessed or can be uh, to that degree. But I do believe we can be influenced. How many of us? We talked in one of the men's groups or men's meetings. We talked about uh, what we do with idle time. I'm not good with idle time. Any men in the room good with idle time? Nothing that I do is good when I have idle time. I should be go. I should do something. Go build something, go write, write a sermon, go see somebody, go visit with somebody. But idle time is not my friend. It's probably not your friend either. Spiritual influences are real, and while we cannot be, those of us who are, are uh, blood-bought believers in Jesus Christ, born again, saved, whatever term you want to use, we cannot be influenced to that degree. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I believe that. But that doesn't mean you can't trip up, and it's easy. Those sins that so easily beset us. They so easily beset us because so often we take the same route that we know every time I take this route, I'm, I'm tempted by this thing. Whether it be, be, be lust or pride or, or whatever it might be. Every time I go down this road and add some idle time, I fail. So why do I keep going down that road? And why do I keep looking for idle time? Because there's a part of me that's still there. The image of God is, is there, but it's, it's, it's not erased, but it is effaced. And this broken world has its effect upon us. And so we proceed cautiously. And nobody, isn't this true, nobody lies to us like us, right? Nobody is a better deceiver of you than you are. I mean, think about it. You, you, you have this crazy idea, and you think, how do I get from A to B on that one? And you realize quickly, I can't. So you start thinking, well, and for whatever, whatever reason, you always look up. Like, like there's ideas on the wall there or something. Or better notes for my sermon. There's nothing up there. But when you sit around and just grind the gears and turn the wheels and, and you think you're going to come out in victory, it's not, it's, you're never going to will yourself out of sin. You can't do it. The more you think about it, the more it will eat away and the more you're going to fail. So test the spirits. Know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Know that uh, nobody lies to us like we do. We're great self-manipulators. But, but, if you have a revelation from God like Paul did with Jesus... You need no other confirmation. You need no other training. You need no other permission. You need no one else's blessing. And you need no other encouragement. You have but to obey what God is telling you to do.
And I told you last week, sometimes it can be a lonely place to feel called by God to do something. Because you go and tell your closest friends and family. What happens? Make that They can't make that upside down smile and that weird guttural noise and it's like, you eat something bad or what? Um, and you realize it's, it's just you and the lofty things that you think God's calling you to and they know you for who you are. And so don't blame them too much. They've seen you at your worst. Maybe they've seen you at your best too, but we know who we are at our worst. But if God has spoken to you, if he's given you a revelation like, like uh, Jesus did to Paul, you don't need anybody else's approval or blessing, encouragement, whatever else. You get busy at what God has called you to do. Sometimes it's a lot of wandering trying to find out exactly what that is for me. I felt called to preach 10, 12 years ago. Who do you preach to? So I brought people in my living room. I practice on them. In Bible studies, small groups, that kind of thing. You be, you be faithful with little and God will give you more. And God will make much of your little. Because that's all you have to offer anyway. Verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. I'm going to talk more about Paul's persecution of the church in a minute. You can go to, if you want to read about that, one of the kind of the uh, pinnacles of that, Acts chapter 7, uh, we see him standing over, presiding over the death. He's holding the coats. So people can hurl stones better at Stephen. I mean, think, think about what kind of low life you have to be to hold somebody's coat so they can better throw rocks at somebody to kill him. That's Paul. But unfortunately, that's you. That's me. So we're going to talk more about his persecution of the church in a moment. But two things I'd like to point out that most people would think are qualifiers or even preconditions of being used by God. Look at the text there. I was advancing in Judaism beyond my, uh, many of my own age. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So two, two things that, that make people feel like they're ready to just uh, handle any job for God. Paul was knowledgeable. And he was committed. He was an intellectual. He was an academic. He knew things like the back of it. He knew the Jewish law like the back of his hand. And he was more zealous than anyone. Look at what he says about himself in Philippians 3, 4 and 6. Now this is not, this is not Paul actually bragging. He's saying, I could. I don't desire to brag to you. I don't desire to boast to you. But, but check out my resume. Because if you're willing to brag about what you got, think about what I have to brag about. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, the best educated, knew the most, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law faultless. Who, who can stand here today and say, I, I'm all those things that Paul was. I have room to brag. So Paul was educated, he was motivated, he had knowledge and he had commitment in his advancing in Judaism. And he had great zeal, he was motivated. He had, uh, you have to have a great motivation and zeal to be able to do the kind of things that Paul did. Have you ever noticed that some of the worst people in the world are religious zealots? With a little bit of information and mostly misinformation? 
I mean, think about planes running into buildings. I mean, how, how backwards do you have to be to think that's appropriate or that's something that God, the Creator, would want you to do? It's, it's exactly backwards. That's the answer to that question. It's exactly backwards. It's 180 degrees from right. But that's what we are as religious zealots apart from the working of the Spirit and Jesus in our life. So normally these two together, you consider somebody mission ready. But neither of those things made Paul ready. Actually, it was when he was a broken heap on the road to Damascus that God had him exactly where he wanted him, exactly where he needed him, realizing that he was broken. I think some of us get caught up in the lie that because I'm knowledgeable, because I'm motivated, that therefore means that I'm I'm mission ready for God. How many people have known somebody that knew the Bible like the back of their hand, but they they couldn't find a nice word to say about anybody? It doesn't matter if, you're, if your head is filled with this book, and it should be, but the more it's filled with this book, it ought, to, it ought to wear away at some of those ugly parts of you. It ought to start chipping away at the ugly corners, and there are ugly corners in all of us. So intelligence is not enough. Motivation is not enough. So if, that's, if you're sitting here with only those two things, maybe you're in the same boat Paul is in, and maybe God is waiting for your Damascus Road experience to break you down to chisel you down to size and make you realize who you are. I suppose I should be trying to gain popularity today. It's a welcome, Pastor Jeff. Thank you for saying all those mean things to us. That's all we want is the truth. And, and uh, you know, this book is sometimes mean to me. Because it points things out to me I don't like about me. But... We gotta deal with it, right? Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Let me start with this thing. I'm not gonna get any more popular right now, but he set up set me apart before I was born. Similar to a couple of prophets in the Old Testament. You probably are thinking of them already, perhaps. Jeremiah and Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I consecrated you. I called you to be a prophet. Before I formed you in the womb, I already had a job for you to do. Isaiah chapter 49, and verse 1. He called me from the womb. He named my name for my mother's body. And so I want to suggest to you, if you ever needed a pro-life argument, there it is. Pastor Jeff, don't get political. Don't get political. I'm getting biblical. And I can't back down from that. There are hills I'm not willing to die on. There are hills I'm willing to give up for the greater war. That's not one of them. Where was I? You guys get me fired up and then... So Paul didn't immediately consult with anybody. But he was set apart. Uh, The sanctity of human life cannot and must not be reduced to some political talking point. I hope you can understand that. You know, people say, well, let's, let's, let's separate church and state. Let's separate the, your beliefs from, from who you are. Well, how do you do that? 
I think through this stuff a lot, and I haven't come up with a way of, of separating who I am from who I am in Christ in this book. So it goes on, he called me by his grace, you think? You think it required grace to call Paul away from murdering Christians to then be a, a preacher of the gospel? Remember Paul's admission? He said, he said of his own mouth, I tried to destroy the church of God through persecution. Not only was Paul not working in accordance with God's will, he was fighting actively against it. But I want you to hear me on this. This is, this is very important. And if you're taking notes, you should write this down. Maybe circle it, underline it, highlight it. Wait until the ink dries before you highlight it. Or else it's just going to be a smeary mess. And you won't be able to read it. So, But hear me on this. Nothing that you have done in your past, nothing that you have failed to do in your past, prevents God from using you in the present or in the future. Nothing behind you in the rearview mirror keeps you from being used by God in the future or in the present. Now some people sitting here and, and almost depressed and almost despairing, I've, but Jeff, you don't know what's in my past. You don't know what I've done. Well, unless it's worse than killing folks and, and uh, I mean, fighting against God himself, I, I don't know what you could conjure up to say that you've done that was worse than what Paul did or worse than what David did. Nothing in your past is going to keep God from using you. But some people in despair and depression, they say, God can't use me because I have this black spot on my life. God can't use me because I've got this mark on my life. They, they actually want to be used. I'm telling you this morning, God can and will use you the moment you let that go. Bring it to the altar and leave it there. He asked you to take, take his yoke upon you because his burden was light. He's exchanging the, the, the weight of legalism, the weight of the bondage of having, having to fulfill the law, which you can't do. He's saying, well, here's grace instead. So Paul called by his grace... Others, you go a step beyond this. You actually use this as an excuse. You hide behind it. You say, I'm actually content not to be used by God. See this thing in my past, I, I'm not even going to try. I've got an ugly past, so I'm not going to even work at it. You're using it not only as a blockade for God to use you, you're using it as an excuse that he won't use you. Don't, don't heap another sin upon your past sins. Let go of those and be a new creation in Christ. Because he was pleased to reveal his son to me. This is so backwards. A God who was just dealing with Paul, who was fighting him on everything he wanted to do to build his church, is now saying, it pleased me to reveal my son to you. That is completely backwards, but that's grace for you. Shouldn't it instead read, uh, he was reluctant or refusing to reveal his son to me after all that Paul had done? That's what justice would call for. That's what common sense would call for. And though he was pleased to reveal his son to Paul in order to ready him for the mission that he had for him to preach Jesus to the Gentiles. And when that happened, when that call fell upon Paul and on his life, he did not immediately consult with anybody. So whose approval do we seek when Jesus himself has given you your marching orders? That's like going, if, you're, if you've been in the military, that's like getting, getting uh, marching orders from the, uh, the battalion commander then, and then asking your your team leader, squad leader, if it's okay. 
Like, no, what he just said trumps anything you're going to say to me. So instead, Paul takes a moment to take it in, to wrestle with this revelation and what it means to have uh, this about face upon his life. He went from staunch Jew persecuting the church to missionary to the Gentiles. I don't want you to lose the irony there. Uh, the Jews believed themselves to be, and they were, a peculiar people set apart for God and his purposes, to bring about the Messiah. But they believed them to themselves to be a, a cut above. They believed themselves to be uh, more elite than the Gentiles. And, and so in, in irony, in God's irony, uh, he says, so I'm going to call you to preach to the Gentiles. That's your job. And if you notice, God tends to do that with us in our lives, and we are most reluctant in an area, that's when he calls us to that area. I remember, I don't know if I shared this with you during my testimony, but I was uh, probably 9 or 10 years old, maybe 11, uh, Ty's age, and, and I remember watching uh, a minister as he was preaching, as he was speaking, and I said to God, I, I quietly prayed to myself, I said, God, I'll do anything you ask me to do, don't ask me to do that. What? And that's the very thing that he called me. And I don't think he called me because I prayed that. It's just that, that that's the, that those thoughts were already spinning in my head at 11 years old, 12 years old, and I, and I just put them away. But God called, I think God enjoys some irony every now and again. So Paul takes a moment. He, he wrestles with this new revelation. Goes from staunch Jew persecuting the church and now a missionary of the Gentiles. I just want to ask you this question. What is God revealing to you that you need to turn from to align with his will for your life. What is the thing that you're saying, no, God, right now, this thing's more important than you? You have, you have one. Unless every single area of your life is yielded to God Almighty, you have an area that you're saying, nope, you can't have this, God. You can't. I care too much about this. In fact, I care more about this than I care about you. I appreciate the emphasis with the door. That was good. Good timing. So, Paul will eventually get to Jerusalem after his period of reflection and his return to Damascus where it all began. Can you imagine as Paul is returning to Damascus, he didn't have thoughts of what just happened a little bit ago? The blinding light, I fall off my horse, I, I can't see anything, I'm in a crumpled mess on the floor. This proud guy, this, this Pharisee of Pharisees, this Hebrew of Hebrews, on a crumpled mess on the floor. And God says, now that you're broken and miserable, I can use you. That's where he has to get us. There's not enough room for our egos to come along for the journey. If the rocks cry out in silence, so will I. And haven't I reminded you a couple times already that uh, he could raise up rocks to do what we do? He doesn't need me. doesn't need you. But thank God he uses us anyway, in spite of us, not because of us. Verse 18, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. That's just another uh, way of expressing Peter. And remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And this is not explained in the text, but James, the, the Lord's brother, I want you to know that uh, something so remarkable happened to James. Uh, he grew up with Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And you understand that, that James was not a believer in his brother. When he says, hey, by the way, I'm the son of God. James was not a believer when they grew up. Uh, so what is it that took place in James's life to completely turn that around so that James would become the leader of the early church? My suggestion to you would be this, that James encountered the risen Christ and could do nothing but follow him. 
I take you back to my favorite verse, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 20. How can I but speak of the things that I've seen and heard? When you've met Jesus for who he is, how can you, how can you be silent about that? So James, the Lord's brother, I, and I imagine, I just, not to belabor this, but I imagine there'd be some sort of satisfaction for James. And not satisfaction that his brother died, but imagine running around with your, one of your siblings is one of the crazy guys that says he's God. And you're like, oh, James again. I mean, Jesus again. Do you, do you have to keep saying that? All my friends are here. It's embarrassing. You're weird. And then, and then he's crucified. It's, an, it's awful. You, you loved him, so you hated seeing it happen. But there's a bit of relief, I imagine. Because James is now beyond that point in his life, he has to explain his brother anymore. He doesn't have to answer for his crazy brother anymore. So why did James not stay in his disbelief? Except for something so magnificent happened to James that it completely turned him around, just like all the apostles who wouldn't be seen near Jesus in his hour of need. The shepherd was struck and the sheep scattered, as the prophecy said that they would. Paul goes on, he says, In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. We have a way, it's, it's, become, it's become so uh, flippant in our, in our day and, and age uh, that when somebody says they swear to God, it means nothing. It means less than nothing. Um, but I recall a time when uh, my own uh, mother was asking me, did you do this? And I knew for sure I was guilty of sin. Did you do this? Nope. It seems like my best interest is served by saying no to you right now. So No didn't do it. And she kept at me. And then finally she said, if Jesus was standing right here, could you tell me no? I was like, oh, don't bring him into it. But just thinking about that, in the presence of God, could I say no? I crumbled. Probably 11, 12 years old, I said, no, I did it. I did it. Guilty as sin. I did it. So writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he, used to he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And that's the transformative power of the gospel in your life. That you can go from persecuting people to loving them and to bring them to the cross that you tried to destroy. Amen. And it says, verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. I bet they would. To see that kind of transformation at the power of the gospel and meeting Jesus face to face for who he is. I'm going to ask the worship team to come, come uh, on back up and we're going to try to keep our concluding thoughts short here. But I wonder if you could, sitting here today, if you could relate to any of the things that we've uh, shared today. Maybe you are here allowing your past to define your present. You're allowing your past to define your future. Or you're putting limits upon what God can do in and through you because of what you've done. Now, to be sure, there are consequences for sin. There are certain qualifications in Scripture for, for being a, uh, an elder, for being a deacon. If, you, if you've done certain things, so yeah, you've taken yourself out of qualification for that. But let's not put a limit on what God wants to do in and through you in whatever capacity He wants to use you because of something you did in your past. You think God either can or won't use you because of something you've done, something you've said, something you haven't done, something you haven't said. Maybe every time God gives you an opportunity to witness about him, you just, you just shrink in fear, cowardice. But he wants to give you more opportunities to not, to not fail again.
Maybe you're even taking that one step further, making excuses for why you aren't being used by God. Don't add a second sin to the sins of your past by hiding behind them. God wants to use you starting today. Maybe you're like Paul was, but you think because of your great learning, your great intellect, your great zeal, that you're primed for a God-sized mission. You think, oh man, he's lucky to have me. If that's your thought, I'd say your ego is too big to be used by God. Maybe it's just those things that have made you forget your Damascus moment, that you, uh, that time that you first came to the cross, humble and broken, and now pride has blinded you. And perhaps you sit here with us today having never had a Damascus moment at all. When I speak about knowing Jesus, making Jesus king, your conversion experience, and you say, those are foreign concepts to me. I don't even know what that means. Well, then you haven't had it. You haven't had your Damascus Road experience. You haven't met Jesus and said, you are king of my life. That means I'm off the throne. Maybe you've never kneeled to the cross to submit your life to the king, to offer him your allegiance and put all your trust and faith in him. It's not you plus him. It's him plus nothing. Wherever you are, I want you to remember these three things, and I apologize. I brought you guys up early. You're good. Right. I, wanted to, I wanted somebody else to be sweating up here with me. It's always at least 10 degrees hotter here than it is there. But three things I want you to take away with you uh, today. First of all, God is pleased to call you by grace, to repentance and the faith in Him despite your past. Number two, it will never be your effort or your zeal that make you fit for kingdom use. It won't be those things. God wants you to do those things, but it won't be because of those things that you're fit for use. But your recognition of your weakness and your brokenness. Paul said, I'd rather glory in my infirmities. I'd rather uh, boast in my weaknesses. Because when I am weak, then am I strong. And thirdly, you need, to, you need not seek the approval or permission of man to follow the call of God that's been placed in your life. You need only feet willing to move in obedience to it. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we once again thank you for our time this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the many hands that prepared food uh, for us, Lord, and we uh, just look forward to fellowship. But, Lord, I pray right now uh, fervently, uh, if there's somebody here, Lord, that doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, Lord, that you would make that clear to them. I have never had my Damascus Road experience. And might not might they not leave here today without talking to me or, or someone else about how they could be certain of that? Father, we thank you for the truth, the whole truth of the gospel, the good news that puts you properly on your throne. And we thank you for the salvation by the blood of your Son. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.